0: Welcome to episode 36 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Mike, how are you? We're in the now at the beginning of February and Valentine's Day is almost here. We'll have another conversation about that next week. But a lot of stuff has been going on in culture. I forgot (laughs) that we could talk about culture as opposed to politics and riots and racism and Trump. It feels good to just talk about culture, right?
1: That is part of culture. I think a lot of times art, some of the most powerful art has been inspired by just what's going on in society. So I kind of see the two together.
0: Absolutely. Well, last week we had a chance to talk to Donnell Rawlings, uh, one of the hottest comedians in the game right now. And we had a really interesting conversation with him that had to do with black power. But then there was this one moment in the conversation when I asked him about his advice essentially about what Latinos can do better to improve their professional chances.
1: Everybody has their time. Everybody has their time when it's all mm. about the Latino. Everybody's time is all about the blacks. You know what I'm saying? And the Latino audience, with anything, has stayed close to the black audience. I don't think it's like what they have to do. I think they just gotta stay the
2: course that they're doing now. You can't rush it. You can't look at someone else's career and decide that that's your time. You have to just stay the course. And the thing that you have to do is learn how to be happy.
1: At whatever level you at, whatever level you are, whether it's financially, mental, you gotta learn how to find your happiness with that. But if you constantly
0: trying to gauge, well, I did this and we did this and look at this, you ain't gonna never be happy. Yeah, Mike, that answer, I'm a little mixed with it, but especially mixed with when I heard your point of view on that answer
1: first of all, I love Donnell. I think he's amazing. And to contextualize it, I, I suggest everybody go back and listen. We were talking about black power and not just black power, really, personal power. How do you build your brand? How do you become powerful when everything's against you, especially in media? And and we were talking, and I guess the world is talking about all these black stories now that are coming out, all these black movies and TV shows and, and black executives and positions of power. And so the power is shifting. He's one person who is definitely done that in this time. And you asked him that question. As he answered, I have to say, what started to resonate with me or bother me slightly is the idea of, you know, your time will come. Your time will come. Now, of course, it depends on where it comes from, but your time will come always feels a little bit like, this is what they said to Martin Luther King. You know, this is what they said to to various civil rights leaders who were asking for equality. So, I do agree staying the course, but at the end of the day, I am, as a Black person, of course, I have all my views on what it is to be a Latino, about the importance of brown stories, but I am less interested in what a Black person has to say about such a thing. Now, of course, you asked the question, but... I'm much more interested in what you have to say, what the Latino's perspective is, what George Lopez has to say about it, what John Leguizamo has to say about it, what some of the people you interview on your show, Highly Relevant, have to say about it. I'm much more interested in their perspective.
0: That's interesting because unlike you, I don't want to hear my own people talk about my own people. Interesting. I want to hear a black person Talk about the Latino experience. And this is what what you and I had, had conversed about, you know, off air yesterday, which was, Mike, black people don't have conversations about the Latino experience in media. Tell me a black movie that you saw that talks about the Latino experience. Go to MSNBC, CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, where you have a black contributor speaking about the Latino struggle. It, it doesn't come out of their mouth. Black people, in my opinion, from everything that I've seen historically since I was a kid till now, a black people in the media talk about the black struggle. Latinos, on the other hand, are interesting because we also don't talk about the black experience like that. And if we do talk about it, most of the times it's negative. And that has a lot to do with colorism. And we've gone through this, how the Dominican Republic is a country that doesn't really accept that they're descendants of African Americans, especially slaves. So we have to deal with all that. But- Latinos don't really talk about the black experience. Blacks don't talk about the Latino experience. Whites, for some reason, feel like they could talk about any sort of experience except theirs and be accountable for what they're doing. But that's why I particularly like. And, and you've noticed it. I mean, Reginald Hudlin, I asked him the same question.
1: Don't don't just move on. Let's hear what Reginald had to say.
0: You've got to let go of a lot of tropes. If you're going to do relevant content, you um, for that modern Latin audience, I mean, I think you can't say, let's get the whitest looking Latinos possible on the show. you got to have some folks that really express the full um, visual spectrum. Yeah. Yes, the entire. is like, Oh, that's Central American. That's really more native. Than that. And, you know, I, I want to see I want to see what I see when I'm in L.A. Can I see that on TV? So I've asked him and I've asked Keith McCorder, who did By Whatever Means Necessary, uh, where he had a whole documentary about the union and the unification of brown and black people, Latinos and blacks, especially in Harlem uh, back in the 60s and so forth. So that's what I like to do, because if you're not going to talk about it, If you're a black person and you don't want to talk about the Latino experience because, A, you're not very familiar with it. Or if you are like James Monroe, remember James Monroe, you know, back, I don't know how many episodes ago. But James Monroe talked about how he is essentially a brown person because his part of his family is now Latino and he navigates in both worlds. And when you ask a black person about Latinos, to me, it's so novel Chris Rock doesn't talk about it in stand-up comedies about Latinos. Dave Chappelle doesn't really talk about Latinos very much. So when I hear or when I ask, it's because I want to hear their fresh perspective on Latinos. I think it's new. I think it's novel. I think it's unheard. And I find it to be very insightful. But you also have a really good point of us being silenced and just kind of waiting for our time as well. So
1: well, it's very interesting what you're saying because as you're saying, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm recasting this conversation. Okay. So if Asian women who have been oppressed in their culture and, and rose up and were in power in China, let's say, let's say that happened and they were to then have conversations with Muslim women who are oppressed specifically, let's say by extremists or what, you know, whatever part of the Muslims that are really oppressing the women. And they had something to offer in terms of what they should do or how they should approach it. I think it would be beneficial. I mean, I do think perspective is always beneficial, but what really strikes me is just how important it is to have these conversations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without it, there is no progress. I think the whole concept of America to a foreigner, it's like, oh my God. There's so many multicultural people over there. I mean, you just get off the plane and it stops being homogenous. The world stops being, you know, just one race or one ethnicity. Like we go here and there's such a cornucopia of so many types of mosaics and diasporas all at the same time. Oh my God, this is amazing. And then everybody's just talking about their own race. No one's really having the conversation about everybody mixed in. Well, that's sort of
1: the myth versus the reality and the mythos versus the actual history for America, where the America, the quote unquote melting pot. You remember hearing that when you are a kid? America, the melting pot. Right, exactly. Land of the free. You remember that? You're hearing that? You like, it's, just, it's ironic, man, when you're an adult. Honestly, that at the end of the day, you know, I, I have so many vivid memories in my life of white people, who were so grateful to be Mm -hmm. able to have a conversation with me that they've never been able to have with a black person, that I'm such an approachable, open, relatable black person to them that I know that I have changed their perspective on black people. It's happened to me. I sort of take it for granted, you know, because, you know, not to say there's so many ignorant white people, but there's so many white people who it isn't until they come to New York or they are in an environment where they actually can learn about another culture. So I I really do think that what we need to do is listen to each other.
0: a a class on entertainment journalism at montclair state university you know this you've been invited before and you know one of the classes that i teach is about interviewing and there's two types of questions there's essential questions and non-essential questions part of the essential questions is and, and you know i think that a lot of reporters aren't skilled or haven't developed the interviewing skill to really ask essential questions and when i say essentials they are broken down into seven categories essentially it's open-ended questions thought-provoking and intellectually engaging questions they're important transferable ideas higher order thinking like analysis and inference there's additional questions follow-ups to that there's support and justification for those questions and answers there's the recurring questions you know that should be asked so When you break it down like that, that's what I feel that you and I do naturally. I don't think it's necessarily... Some people are born with it. Some people have to acquire it. But if you just ask yourself, you heard three interviews. And out of those three interviews, you're yawning. It's because none of the questions are thought-provoking and none of the answers really merit a real thought-provoking answer. So the only way to achieve those answers... Is really in the designing of those questions. And so, you know, I mean, I have a class, maybe one day I'll make it available for people to have a better understanding of how to ask deep, thought-provoking, intellectually stimulating questions the way we do in this podcast. But for now, it's one of the things that I believe that celebrities truly, truly respond to.
1: In a time like this where most artists working today realize how important it is in this time when you can get somebody's attention, you should be saying
0: something. Dude, they thank us. The guests email us afterwards just to thank us for the conversation. And that speaks to me to a, to a deeper question, right? Uh, you see, we just did it. Uh, it's, it's the context of why they are emailing us and letting us know, uh, who's silencing you? What corporate authority or entity doesn't want you to speak out about it? What are they protecting? Who are you working for that has an agenda? These are all questions. Like I remember when James Monroe said, I'm going to get shot for this if I say it. And I thought those were interesting choice of words that he said this because I think he was going to refer to Disney and that could have jeopardized his status at work, you know, with Aladdin and being a spokesperson for them and, you know, having that relationship that he has with Disney. John Boyega kept on saying this over and over again. He was like, I might lose my job for this if I speak out about Star Wars. But they did. At the end of the day, they did. And nothing happened is because we have to have these conversations, Mike. They're uncomfortable. They're disturbing to have. But if we don't have them, we will not progress as a country. We live together. We interact with each other. We should know the plight of people. That way we can have deeper empathy with them.
1: Saying what you're saying, you know, teaching this course, part of what I think also is there are definitely a lot of entertainment journalists who are not trained the same way. Uh, So their questions may become more personal. And- In this time, especially if you're a brown or black performer or artist or celebrity or whatever it is that you do, and and we're generally reviewing film and music, there's this new trend of having one celebrity interview another celebrity. Yeah. and
0: I I don't like that because it despises the entertainment reporter. Well, that's what I was going to
1: ask you, and I don't know if you're going to address this in your class, but then it becomes like, okay, do you get the spot because of how good you are or because of how many numbers on your site? And how do you compete with a IMDB who can just get these two celebrities for the price of one and they interview each other and ask all kinds of fluff?
0: One, I happen to think we live in a country that has built their business model and system on views, on listens, on streams, on downloads. The most amount of streams and downloads, et cetera, means that you get paid more, more your status rises, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you do that? And I think that the easy route for a lot of people is instead of working harder to do that, just get a celebrity. Listen, we use the same thing, but we do it with cause. Celebrities aren't talking about celebrity stuff celebrities with us are talking about the important issues of the day. It's just coming from their mouth as opposed to anybody else's mouth. But to me, the weight of a celebrity cannot dictate the weight of a historian, a, a master's, a PhD in American identity or history or whatever it may be. I would rather talk to them. We've had Paul Ortiz here talk about the Latin and Black, you know, struggle from his books. Um, so we, we try to mix it up. Uh, We had Joan Baker, uh, who's probably one of the most prestigious female voices in, in, in the voiceover world. And that'll be later this month. We'll be able to hear that interview. But we have such an obsession with celebrities to bring in swaths of people and groups to things that it's making the average person that's building the event, that's building the infrastructures for these celebrities to come into, they're essentially... Silencing the reporter, the journalist. You are not a star. You're anonymous. You, you don't matter is what I hear when I have celebrities doing podcasts and displacing other, you know, podcasts that have been doing four years. And, and then all of a sudden a celebrity comes in. He has 20,000. I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem because they're also not committed to those industries either. They just. Passing by and then leaving.
1: On the one hand, in terms of podcast and in terms of popularity, in terms of being culture critics, because let's face it, that's what Stephen Colbert, Colbert Stephen Colbert, all of them—they're all culture critics. That's what they all are. Yeah. Comedians com- are culture comedians critics are exactly—they are culture critics. So on the one hand, it makes sense. The, the second thought, though, is with the celebrities doing celebrities, the advantage that you get is a natural chemistry because you know each other. And that I think is also the goal of a journalist to to create an instant and natural chemistry. That's what makes TV so hard because it's all like, hi, how you doing? You know what I'm gonna ask you? Okay, let's act like it's something. Versus on a podcast, Ideally, or radio, which is where I come from, you and you have more time, you can really do that. And that's when, if you've done your homework and, like you said, have thoughtful, thought-provoking, provocative questions, questions that take them out of their comfort zone, maybe, to actually be honest, to actually be real, to actually be human, I think that's what a good journalist can do.
0: story that that, that, that you that you read because i'm sort of catching up on it and it's shocking man to just even like listen to
1: a vaccination site meant to serve a hard-hit latino neighborhood in new york instead serviced more whites from other areas now this is in washington heights this is where i live it's a latino neighborhood A COVID vaccination site in a Latino neighborhood in New York City hard hit by the pandemic saw an overwhelming number of white people from outside the community (laughs) show up to get shot this month. City leaders say laying bare a national disparity that shows people of color
0: are being vaccinated at dramatically lower rates. I sent you an article how there's all these celebrities in L.A. Exactly. that are bribing and paying, what, $10,000 to get access to the vaccine and its privilege and money that they have of value that other regular people cannot get. Meanwhile,
1: hear about they have to give it away then to people because it's about to expire because they haven't gotten it. into. I mean, the word botch doesn't even partially describe how this is all being handled. But coming back to the point, I guess what it says to me is that whole idea that, yeah, my life is much, much more valuable than yours. And no, I I don't have any qualms about it. I sent that article to at least half a dozen, dozen friends. They all had things to say, but two things came up that surprised me. One, Well, maybe this shouldn't surprise me. It was a white woman who her response was like, oh, well, they they just don't want to die and and they could get an appointment. And how is that a crime? And I couldn't even have the conversation.
0: I'll tell you how it's a crime. It's a crime is that they don't give this stuff to us anyway because we're Latino and we're black and they know it. And so they're making measures to try and put us first. You know, something called equality. that we get it at the same exact time, but because you, white people are constantly harvesting every single support system that the government puts out like the PPP. Remember when we was supposed to be Dude. for us? And all of a sudden, these millionaire companies were snatching them up. And by the time that the poor yep. minority, black and brown- Is it already spread? Get, yes. There was no more money left. Right. And then you find out that these big, big companies that don't need, like Harvard, didn't wasn't Harvard or Yale one of these institutions collecting $5 million? Dude, the wealth you already have. Oh, well, well, that's not meant for those things. It's meant for what? Buying real estate and becoming bigger and more powerful? So, Mike, we, there's a bigger issue here overall in American history when it comes to white people not allowing brown and black to have the same equal opportunities. And then when we do have them, then it's completely overwhelmed by whites exploiting it. The article has a link
1: to an earlier article by uh, Nicole Terry Ellis and Deidre McPhillips. This is also in CNN. Here's the title. White people are getting vaccinated at higher rates than black and Latino Americans. Black and Latino Americans are receiving the COVID-19 vaccine at significantly lower rates than white people, a disparity that health advocates blame on the federal government and hospitals not prioritizing equitable access.
0: Yeah. And that was a lot of the Trump administration that Biden's now trying to fix. Right.
1: Now, here's the other thing that stood out to me. Did the Latinos in that neighborhood want to go and get those vaccinations? You know, Latinos, as we know, have been hit very hard by this and poor communities obviously have hit very hard. But there are a lot of Latinos who, A, don't want to follow those those rules and B, don't trust the government with good reason. So I wanted to know your thoughts on that. That was someone's response right away. So yeah, but did did the Latinos in the neighborhood want them? What's your thought on that?
0: I happen to think that if it's meant for Latinos and blacks then they they should have been communicated that this is it. But I think one of the problems is that not everybody has wifi. They're getting this information through word of mouth. So not everybody knows it. Maybe the way that somebody who's reading the newspapers that has access to, you know, a computer right. or your phone on an iPhone 12, you know, whatever, that they have that type of privilege that they can go, "Oh, here's the issue. If you're a Latino, what if you're a Latino white?" And how many Cubans have you seen that look like Irish people or like Germans? Too many of them. And if they even speak a little bit of Spanish, let's say you put a security guard there and everybody that's white, you got to push them out. And nah, nah, you're white, man, you're coming in here. These are all brown and black people. But we all know that there's a lot of black people that are light skin, that pass off as Dominican. There's a lot of uh, white uh, white Latinos that look like they're aryan you know german how do you stop that well i'll tell you how you stop it the way you stop it okay is you be logical you
1: say in order to qualify for this shot you must live within this zip
0: code and bring proof right but what about gentrification mike
1: well Again, that's another thing. We're talking about a poor neighborhood. This was not a gentrified neighborhood. So gentrification is a whole other thing.
0: Well, if we're talking about Washington Heights, Washington Heights has been gentrified
1: De- again, for five, seven years Dude, uh, you, who are you telling? Uh, but I... I <laughs> <laughs> a lot more than that. But I will say that, again, there's still strong pockets of Latino communities up here. I'm not quite... I'm just below Washington Heights. But yes, there's strong pockets up here. But I, I do feel it brings up like you said, the the larger question of how is this information being communicated? How much access do they have to it? Are there, is there any on the ground? Is there any community, uh, you know? And that's on top of the fact that we're in the pandemic. So people may not frequent places they normally would.
0: At the end of the day, we need to put in more stricter measures of, How browns and blacks can have the same medical access and equality that whites already normally have. And for whites to come in like vultures and snap away and you know snatch away the little bit that's left for us whether it's banks and monies and loans or just medicine where's your guilt factor man where where was that guilty morale that's... that that allows you to say yeah man i probably shouldn't do
1: this dude somebody sent me a photo of a woman showing up in the poor neighborhood was it marjorie green no <laughs> in the poor neighborhood getting out of her limo carrying her dog to go in to get her shot
0: all right, so it wasn't courtside Karen either.
1: No, it wasn't courtside Karen. This is this is Rich. Rich Rich. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of mo
0: we saw the nominations for the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes as well. Uh, Rarely do we see those two organizations giving their nominations in the week, but because of 2020 and everything that's been happening, uh, schedule changes have uh, allowed this to happen. So the first one was the Golden Globes and today was the SAG Awards. So Mike, do you wanna just begin with the recent SAG Awards really quick and go through I'll
1: go through it really quick. Outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture. They named The Five Bloods, Netflix, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Netflix, Trial of the Chicago Seven, Netflix, Minari, A24, and One Night in Miami by Amazon Studios. And if you can't see a trend there, well, that I think, you know, you just need to listen a little more.
0: Oh, unlike the Golden Globes, Mike, that didn't even nominate one single Black movie in a year of some incredibly amazing, spectacular black stories. For the Golden Globes not to pick in any of their categories, uh, Minari or black films is crazy. The SAGs is the actor's organization. Yes. They look at actors and they go, okay, this is the best. I, I would hear them out first. I would believe them first. Then the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is, they're not even critics They're not even real entertainment journalists. I I don't know what they are, but they've come off as, hey, we're an authority on film. And these guys have no clue. They're not plugged into the pulse of what's happening in America. I feel they're tone deaf. They have no clue of what's going on. And it is a very sad, sad state of affairs that the Golden Globes continues to have an award show on television. It continues to shape minds. But those who know it, they know that the Golden Globes are trash man.
1: Well, they they're trash but they're also let's be honest. It's white trash. that was picked by the SAG Awards for both outstanding performance and for Best Picture, Trial of the Chicago 7.
0: You know why you're on trial here? The whole world is watching! The whole world is watching! You all right? No words until I saw that.
2: Martin's dead. Bob is dead. Jesus is dead. They tried it peacefully. We gonna try something else. These rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security.
1: This revolution, we may have to hurt somebody's feelings. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation?
0: I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. The film is based on the infamous 1969 trial of seven defendants charged by the federal government with conspiracy and more arising from the countercultural protests in Chicago at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. The trial transfixed the nation and sparked a conversation about mayhem intended to undermine the U.S. government. Sound familiar, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) The trial of the Chicago 7 in the Capitol riots uh parallel each other even though one happened in, in in the 60s and the other one happened in 2021 this is america folks this is american history it is a very problematic situation and honestly mike you know this movie is more relevant than it was probably when it came out you know li- uh, or late last year uh, the movie is directed by Aaron Sorkin and written by Aaron Sorkin and stars an all-star cast that features Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong from Succession. I believe he won an Emmy as well for that. Frank Langella as the corrupt, in my opinion, morally corrupt judge. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays a lawyer, and I liked his performance here. Mark Rylance, which is Steven Spielberg's favorite actor, was also a lawyer here. Michael Keaton, out of all the actors, was in this. And then perhaps... A minimal, but very powerful performance by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who we spoke to. Uh,
1: Yahya, yeah. my question to you is, what's your approach to playing a real-life character versus a fictional character, and is there any difference? I mean, obviously, you can do different kinds of research to play Bobby Seale than you can Black Manta, but what's your process?
2: I try to apply the same type of process uh, from the beginning. You know, I, I try to do as much research as possible. And you're right, you know, I think with something like this, I, there's more access to, to uh, information when I have a living, breathing person to be able to, to uh, connect with. But I, I go through the same process of figuring out their likes and dislikes, their needs, their wants, their desires, their history and background. And then the context in which in, and, and, and figuring out what, what my responsibility is within the, the, the play or within the, the script and the, and the story. With this one, it was so important to very, very early on to identify what part of the love story I wanted to tell in terms of Bobby Steele. In my process, I tend to, to think that every good story is a love story, that every good mm-hmm. story is a love story between or that involves a person who is in love with an, another person or an idea or a way of life. And that throughout that story, if it's a good story, then the antagonist is gonna to attempt to take that thing away from me, whether it be that person or that idea, that that value. Um, and so for me, after I did all of my homework, all the research and watched the interviews and. Read, uh, read the autobiographies. I said, what comes to the surface in terms of the thing that Bobby Seale was in love with? And that was uh, freedom and humanity. The idea that he is a man above all else, that he's a human being, an American, uh, who has the rights afforded to him by the Constitution. You know, it all came back to humanity. And so uh, that that was my process, was really honoring myself with as much information, as much DNA as possible, so that I could be in love as Bobby Seale, in love with the idea of of being able to to experience humanity to the fullest, not only for my own self, but for the people who I would then go out and be an advocate for. And then I went out into the world, uh, into the world that Aaron Sorkin laid out uh, for us.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I was gonna ask you about the gagging scene in, in the film, Trial of the Chicago 7. At first, I'll tell you my experience. When Bobby came in, I was unfamiliar with the story. Not everybody's familiar with that particular story of why is he here, why is Bobby here? And I had just finished watching Judas and the Black Messiah. And obviously I saw a different version of Fred Hampton there. And as I'm looking at this, there was a moment where I just felt like the Bobby Seal was like a shtick. It was funny. It just, everybody seemed like it was like a joke. And then he was removed, brought back and there was that notorious now gagging scene, it went from what was what seemed funny to something very serious. And it was disturbing at that point. And I was like, wow, I never thought I would go from that lightness mm-hmm. to that seriousness. So as an actor, how did you treat that scene?
2: The entire uh, performance of, of Bob Seal in this film for me was an exercise in, in uh, restraint. It was an exercise in frustration. Being, being angry, being frustrated rightfully and wanting to do so much more than, than his position allowed him to do his position as a black man, his position as a black man in court, his position as a black man in court without representation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In 1969, 1970, you know, the difficulties that come with that. But in, terms of the, in terms of the gagging scene, it came back down to humanity. It came back down to saying, you know, understanding that that process or that, that, that act was not designed to silence him because he had been speaking out and attempting different methods of getting his voice heard in the court and negotiating how much to say and when to say it, the volume or the, the method and the, and the tone, you know, that he would attempt to be heard. But he was speaking out. He was speaking out. And that act, when it came down to it, it was about breaking his spirit. You know, I knew that it wasn't about silencing him. It was about making sure that when the gag came off, that he would never speak out again and that others like him would not speak out. So I told myself that in order to not be broken, I'm going to go back to that thing that I wanted to protect the most, which is my humanity. It was to be able to go through that process, to still stand up at the end of that experience and to say, I'm still a man. You know, I still have my manhood and you have not taken that away from me. So as he was being bound and gagged. I reminded myself, I said, I'm still a man. When he was being handcuffed, I'm still a man. When they put the rag in his mouth and he couldn't say it, I couldn't say it any any longer, then it moves to the brain, I'm still a man. And when he's carried out, I made sure that his head was not down, but it was up. His chin was up for everybody to witness and see what they're doing to me, a man, a human being, and wants to make sure that he wasn't represented as someone who was broken in that moment, someone whose spirits were broken, but, but someone who could not be broken at the end of the day.
1: I have to ask you, you know, I think there's a lot of context here. You know, you mentioned playing him, you know, as a black man, as a black man in court, as a black man in America. I, I tend to feel that as you define your art, your art defines you. Two questions. We've seen some of the best films and the AFI came out with a list are films about the black experience here in America, black historical dramas. And you're playing powerful black historical figure. And I'm wondering just in terms of context for you as an artist, What did you learn about yourself playing a character like this and what are your thoughts on just how important it is that these kind of stories are actually being told now?
2: I go through this process and I feel the need to say more and to do more. I think there's so much more to Bobby Seale's story and experience that we did not cover in The Trial of the Chicago 7. And it tells me that in my experience, I just I, I got a taste of what the art can be for me and the impact that I can have in the in, in the arts when the material is right and when the director is right and when the opportunity is right and when the proper scale or time is given to the stories that such as the slice of life, you know, that I was given the responsibility of bringing forth with uh, Bobby Seale, and I walk away knowing that knowing that now is the time to tell bold stories. Now is the time to be very bold with our art, and not even bold, but be, but to be truthful with the with the art, because sometimes truthful will will be bold enough, and that and, and that is perfectly fine, and probably encouraged to if the truth makes people uncomfortable. One thing that's becoming a common theme in our art is that people don't believe our stories when we tell them. Our, our stories and our experiences are not taken at, uh, at the value of the word. And so in our art, we have a responsibility or we have an opportunity to continue to tell the truth, to tell it exactly as, as the truth and to let it be seen on the screen and to make people uncomfortable until they begin to uh, accept it as the truth. You know, I think we saw that with George Floyd and, and the way that seeing the truth the very uncomfortable ways caused so much change or sparked so much domino effect of uh, change throughout the entire world. Whereas if we would have heard a story like that, then it would have been something that would, would have been unbelievable to a very large demographic and population of the, of the world. So it's important to continue to tell the truth to continue to represent the truth as truthfully as possible. And a lot of times that that will equate to making bold art. What I did learn is that I, is that I have a much bigger appetite and I hope that other people are, are, you know, begin to have the same appetite as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you very much uh, for being on the Brown and Black Podcast.
2: I thank you, pardon me for being a uh, long-winded, but it was a really, really great question. I really appreciate you.
1: Something, his role and seeing all the films that all of them, The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Trial of Chicago Seven, One Night in Miami, all of these films, they all are about American history. What they all say is that just the lengths America went to, and as we can see, is still going to to maintain this ideology, to maintain this way of living, to maintain this social setup, and they had the full power of the government to make this happen. Everything about that movie, I think, is everything about what America is about. Anybody who bucks the system is going to be brought down.
0: The Trial of Chicago 7, to me, is one of the top 10 films of the year. Um, It uh, garnered five Golden Globe nods. Um, for the SAG Award, it was nominated for the Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture. How can you not? A lot of nominations for this film. If you haven't seen it, watch it. There's a lot of passion, a lot of power. And, and uh, here's the only problem, though, man. The writing, obviously, is Aaron Sorkin. As soon as the film opens, you're like, whoa, I think he's improved as a director as well. Um, the cast and the performances were great. Here's my only problem. That movie to me at moments just felt like a comedy and I couldn't take it seriously enough. And I felt that the movie needed more gravitas, more weight. Um, it reaches those moments. And I think someone could say, another critic could say, yeah, but it was a nice balance of comedy and gravitas and seriousness. I think the movie should have been a, probably a lot more serious than a lot more comedic to a certain extent. To the point that I even asked Yaya, uh, the actor, about that moment. There was a moment he just kept on getting up. Hey, listen, I'm not supposed to be here. And and even cast members were, were laughing and joking. And the viewer, I'm sure they were laughing and joking. And then there was a moment that you just didn't laugh anymore. So I think it could have been probably one of, the, if not the best film of the year, but it lacked in, in conviction that I needed to see. And I didn't get that. I, I felt like it was the wigs, the, the, the accent. I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen, act, you know, having a, a Boston accent was just terrible, Mike. Jeremy Strong in that wig was terrible. I couldn't take these guys seriously. It just felt like an SNL skit every time they were on the screen. So I felt that that took away from how good this movie could have been.
1: Well, it's an interesting take. I do feel that the film did not have the gravitas, let's say of a Judas and the black Messiah and, 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 and maybe even the five bloods, I think, but I would credit that to the director. Aaron Sorkin is a great writer and he's worked with great directors and he's written great films that great directors have directed, but he himself is not a great director and the material needed a director that would understand tone words on a page can be anything, and you read it, and you're going to interpret it one way, but the director sets the tone for the performances, the costuming, everything. If you set the tone, and then, of course, all the way down into the editing. So, I feel that the tone is something that he was unable to achieve, that this film needed to give it the gravitas that you're talking about.
0: The next movie that you're going to talk about, Mike, is Judas and the Black Messiah, which was nominated for two Golden Globes. And you can watch it right now on HBO Max.
2: Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Bases are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color.
1: Their aim is to show hatred and inspire terror.
2: I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom.
1: Judas and the Black Messiah is a new film directed and co-written by Shaka King, who I actually knew both of his parents because his mom, Judy Shepard King, is a playwright and I used to do sound design for plays that she wrote. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and there are a number of other famous uh, actors who came out of working with Judy Shepard King in the National Black Theater, so that's part of my history. But Judas and the Black Messiah is a Fred Hampton biopic, essentially. But what it also does at the same time, Fred Hampton, for many people who don't know, was a local leader in Chicago for the Black Panther Party. But he started something called the Rainbow Coalition, which was at the time an enormously smart and empowering thing to do. He got the young lords. Which, of course, was the, sort of the Latino equivalent of the Black Panther Party, and let me just say, Black Panther Party, young Lords all came up for the same reason. These were people who had to organize, not a militia, but they had to organize in a way to help their own communities. That and then he also got what would we would today see as rednecks. Who were also poor who were also being victimized patriots the patriots correct uh and so he got all three of these groups together and in a rainbow coalition to stand up to the man as it were that made him the most dangerous man in america and he had to be dealt with so what they did is they sent a mole they sent someone who was going to be arrested uh, on federal charges for impersonating. William O'Neill. William yep. O'Neill. Uh, a man named William O'Neill, who was going to be arrested on charges for impersonating an FBI officer, but they gave him a deal. And the movie entails the relationship that he had because one of the things that's most powerful about this movie is the title. And the more when you see the movie, you get why he's called Judas because clearly he betrayed Fred Hampton uh, in the same way... Judas betrayed Jesus, who was an uh, a messiah uh and the idea of a black messiah is something that maybe we've kind of lost in in the last fifty years uh one that there could be one and two that the government Feared that there was going to be one because if you look back, they got rid of them all Martin Luther King Malcolm X Fred Hampton and he needs to be named I think in those same conversations that we mentioned Martin Luther King and Fred Hampton and that's how powerful I found Judas in the back Messiah to be
0: this to me is a movie about the assassination of black leaders in this country historically yes This is a movie that details specifically how the FBI and the government will not allow and will kill if they have to all black leaders who are trying to ascend for some sort of racial equality in this world. And the way they shot this guy in real life was was absolutely a disgrace of the way the law enforcement in this country should operate. And to this day, it's still, I I think Fred Hampton was 22 years old, Mike? Yes. Yes, he was. 22 years old. What kind of real threat does a 22-year-old, he's not even 50 yet. I mean, I think that that's what they were looking for, that long-term potential of what was happening. But it was also the gift, the gift to convince people, Mike. If you're a Black Panther leader and you can convince the Patriot group, and their leaders and their people to join you, you are gifted for convincing and selling an ideology. And I think that that's what the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover was really afraid of. You look at MLK, FBI, and it yes. shows you exactly how the government was. And Hoover was also involved in this. If, if there was a, a Satan in our country. In the government for 30, 40 years, it was
1: J. Edgar Hoover. It was, but you know, let's just face it. J. Edgar Hoover was just the the tip of the spear. You know, he had a whole spear behind him. The ideology, and that's one of the things I really found powerful about this film. It really lays out the ideology. There are a number of films, like you said, this documentary, uh, MLK slash FBI, very, very, very powerful to let you see just the lengths that the government will go, can go, and still does go. Every time we read about an unarmed, I just read a statistic saying that since 2015, 135 unarmed people of color were killed by police. Unarmed. That tells me a lot.
0: Yeah, uh, if there is one thing, the, the you can watch the movie on HBO Max, but if there's one thing that I would implore people to do is uh, Daniel Kaluuya's uh, performance as Fred Hampton for some reason, Mike, I'm, uh, and I'll speak only for myself, I could barely understand the way he spoke. It was too fast. Uh, it, it was a particular dialect that I could not make out the words. Therefore, I missed a lot of uh, the points he was trying to make in the conversation. And so put subtitles, if you can, to, to, to further understand. I don't know how many times I had to stop the movie. Thank God I can do that. Rewinded. To just listen to it, did you have the same uh, problem? Uh, not quite, but I totally understand.
1: Like, kind of, I got used to him after a while. But I feel he's kind of—he often has that.
0: Understand? Because I heard, I heard the real friend Hampton talk, and he didn't sound as no. jumbled or mumbled the way Daniel's accent or dialect was for this particular. And then in the trial of the Chicago Seven as well, the 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 the, the, the actor that did friend Hampton in that movie. He, you could listen to everything he said. So I thought that that was a, a, a minor problem of the film.
1: I can definitely understand not being able to understand dialogue. It takes away from being able to completely understand everything that's happening in the film. It's a little thing, but it's it makes a big difference. And speaking of the little things, the next movie is The Little Things. You know him, didn't you?
2: Then you had that one little
1: feeling. But you waved it away.
2: You should have listened to that one little feeling. Just like I'm listening to you now. You can talk to me. I'm all a friend you got. You're not exactly a department favorite. Things probably changed a lot since you left. You still got to catch him, right? yeah okay. not that much a change then i can assure you all we are taking a 24 7 all hands on deck approach to these cases the guy's a shark if he stops he dies he likes to drive probably has a decent car maybe two high mileage they must really like my car i do how's the truck space Something I gotta know. How's a guy with the best clearance rate in the department work 15 years without a promotion? Maybe I didn't go to the right church. When I look in your eyes, what I see, it ain't good. He knew all the details, but he wasn't within 10 miles of the killing. Why is that? Why is that? How's the trunk space? What do you want? I want to nail the bastard. For who? For all of the girls he killed. I want to nail them too. difference is, I'm doing this for me. It's the little things, Jimmy. It's the little things that rip you apart. It's the little things that... Get you caught.
0: This is a movie that's been nominated for a Golden Globe for Jared Leto in that performance, which I disagree with. Uh, you can see it on HBO Max right now. And the movie's about a deputy sheriff, Joe Deacon, played by Denzel Washington, who joins forces with Sergeant Jim Baxter, played by Rami Malik. Uh, who searches for a serial killer who's terrorizing Los Angeles. As a track of the culprit, Baxter is unaware that the investigation is dredging up echoes of Deacon's past, uncovering disturbing secrets that could threaten more than his case. Mike, this is a movie directed by John Lee Hancock, uh, who directed The Blind Side, And that movie, The Blind Side, was nominated for two Oscar awards, one for Best Picture and a winner for Sandra Bullock. But the criticism of that film in particular is that essentially it was devoid of drama or suspense, even though that that's what it wanted to do. So I think the same thing happened here to me. Little Things, just because Denzel is in it, just because Jared Leto is in it. Just because Rami Malek, I think these are three Academy Award performers. No one is going to be talking about this movie at that level yet. That's why it's in no Best Picture categories. Golden Globes or SAGs or probably even the Oscars is because this is a mediocre film, Mike. Jared Leto with the fake teeth and the hair and the make. That dude, again, this just felt like Saturday Night Live skits. (laughs) They didn't have the weight. Uh, of these performances that they've given before. We've seen Denzel Washington in this role before. It's called the equalizer. It's the guy who...
1: uh, He's an officer and a senior citizen. No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) Denzel Washington plays an officer of the law who's ridden by complexities and flaws and quirks that just make it very unique but when he's bringing this character of the equalizer into his movies into all of these other movies that's when i start going well you're according to mike you're not really stretching yourself out here you're just playing the same characters you've been playing before so where is the challenge for denzel rami brother he was better in mr robot I think that the writing wasn't very good here. I didn't really get this movie to the very end. And when the payoff happened, I was like, why? I did not like Little Things. I think it's a mediocre film. And there's so many good other films out there that are worthy of watch that I think the Little Things is, man, when you have nothing else to watch.
1: Wow. That's a an an, almost, that's not a review. That's an indictment. First of all, I think John Lee Hancock Is a good writer. I think he got better over time. He wrote this in 1990, but it never got made. Better films similar to this got made. Seven is the best example, but it also reminds you of the Bone Collector, and and you know there are a number of films about serial killers and about the cops who are chasing them and then the relationship they have with the serial killers. It's you know you were talking about 90s movies. It's definitely a staple of the 90s, and there have been some great ones. A film like this. I feel like he got better. He wrote A Perfect World. He wrote A Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. But those were films that were also directed by veteran directors. Yes, he did The Blind Side, which, you know, everything you said about it, I agree with. Saving Mr. Banks, that was okay. I thought The Founder was probably the best thing he did. And I think that was largely because of the performance by michael keaton who is mm-hmm. at probably doing the best work of his career in the last 10 years but i i agree with you i felt that for him to get nominated nominated for a golden globe that's like that's ridiculous he was window dressing yeah the, he was it was window dressing, uh, was window dressing. He, he was totally window dressing it's like he was more window dressing in this than he was as the joker he
0: asked jared leto yeah about i saw the that. nomination oh really <laughs> he's like yeah. They they said, hey, you just got a, a Golden Globe nomination for your performance. And he's like, yeah, man, you know, that was a risk. But I didn't even know the nominations were on today. This is the same dude that had no idea that COVID was happening. You know, remember that? Over. Where he was in some desert in the middle of nowhere and then he comes back and the world's changed. He's like, yo, what's been going on? It's like he went... He was like Jesus, forty days and forty nights into the desert, comes back, doesn't know what's going on. I
1: I, I agree with you. I thought his performance was window dressing. I, I do like him as an actor. You know, I watched because I have a daughter. I had to watch my so called life when they sent me the DVD. So I've watched him for a long time, and and I think he's he did some great work, and he deserved his Oscars. This same thing with Denzel. We've seen all of them be much better in better films, but I feel two things are wrong. I think that. This is not, he is not a thriller director. It takes somebody, you know, thrillers are not easy to do. That's why somebody like Fincher or Spielberg can do it and take it to a whole new level because they're they're craftsmen at what they do. I think Hancock is good at creating characters, filming them, making it really- Not so much. Well, yeah, making it memorable, yeah, not so much. And I also think that this film, not only was it early in his writing career, but it takes place in 1990 it's very subtle but it, again this has just been done so much and it's the better and it's the
0: end mike it, it's like okay the plot twist is uh, here it, and then when you get it by the, when you see it happening th- you go listen, why
1: by the third act i was like okay why he's digging holes in the desert why why is he doing you know so there are a lot of things unfortunately because I think there there were things about this that I liked, but I felt that the sum does not equal the parts you got three oscar nominated actors, an oscar winning director and it, and a bad story and and while well, just an okay story it's like it's just okay it's not it's not that interesting i've seen better stuff i've seen serial killers, and the cops who go after them done so much better. In 1990, maybe this would have been a big deal before Seven, before The Bone Collector, before all these other films. But now, it just doesn't hold up. But the last film we're going to talk about is a film that was made during the pandemic. Really just the three people involved, the writer, director, and the two actors. It's a film called Malcolm and Marie.
2: (laughs) You are by far the most excruciating, difficult, stubbornly obnoxious woman I've ever met in my entire life. I fucking love you.
0: Oh, he's so sensitive. He's romantic. I bet he's sweet, right? Hey,
2: hey. Well, I mean, yeah. When he's not being an emotional fucking terrorist. Oh. <laughs> I love the way you see the world,
0: Marie. Mystery. The unknown. It's what supports the tension of a relationship. You're angry. No. The what if factor?
2: Marie. 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 What if there's someone who loved them better? Give me your pain. Give me your sorrow.
1: I will carry you you
0: know what malcolm i feel like once you know someone is there for you and once you know they love you you never actually think of them again it's until you're about to lose someone that you finally pay attention
2: well what is it marie what do you want really you want to go there yes okay i will carry you Because you can't imagine, the reason I'm with you is because I love you. Everything that you've been through, everything, that's what made you you. The girl that I love, the girl that I fuck with. I will bear you. All I wanted tonight was thank you, Malcolm. That is it. You know that I'm thankful. You know that I made a mistake. So
0: why turn it into something more? Because about how you see this relationship. Look at me. Malcolm and Marie is a movie that you can watch on Netflix right now. It's a romantic drama about the smoldering tensions and painful revelations between a black couple which push a filmmaker and his girlfriend toward a romantic reckoning. This movie is directed by Sam Levinson and stars Zendaya and John David Washington, which is the son of Denzel Washington. Uh, unfortunately, Mike, I think that the same criticism I had with The Little Things and the father of uh, Denzel kind of applies here to John David and Zendaya. This is a black and white film directed much the way you would see uh, a heated debate movie like Marriage Story um, by Noah Baumbach with Scarlett Johansson uh, and Adam Driver. It, it, you, you live for those heated debates. Well, the whole movie's a heated debate in my opinion and what happens is halfway through of the heated debate you're exhausted cannot take another debate another deep exploration you dude that that's why i think our podcasts aren't 2 hours long you know they have to be shorter because it's so deep and i just felt like there was a moment where john david washington's character was screaming at her, oh, it's like, this is me. And it was his egocentricism and it was his narcissism and it was his ignorance and it was his his callousness and it was his lack of empathy for her. Honestly, it was the same bullshit patriarchy that I don't want to be a part of anymore. And he just didn't seem to want to change, didn't seem to want to listen. And when he listened, it went back to him and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. I just didn't like the character. And I didn't like his opinions. Therefore, I didn't really like this movie very much. It's exhausting. It's an exhausting film.
1: I had different feelings about it. I I, I think similar to a marriage story where it's the difference with marriage story is you're watching two people you like fight. And this one, you're watching people you don't like too much fight. So... <laughs> But I probably like this movie more than the average person because it's about a filmmaker, so I thought that was interesting. I also found it a little bit fascinating that this white writer is going to write about the experience of a black filmmaker and how his work is judged. And I also found it interesting, there are a number of rants in there. One of the rants that one of the cat There's arguments and rants. So they go, like, argument, and then they go rant. Then they go argument, then they go rant. One of the rants is about of film criticism and what it means to be a film critic. And there are rants about sexism, racism, infidelity. There are arguments and discussions about a lot of things. Some of them I felt really rang true. I think some of them were really, he nailed it. And, and I can see why Zendaya and why John David Washington would want to do this. I also see how being cooped up in a pandemic, I, I saw q and A Q&A with Zendaya and John David Washington and Sam Levinson talking about how this project came to be. And she was saying he writes her series Euphoria, which won all kinds of awards. So she clearly has a great relationship. She's kind of a muse for him and she had the idea. She wanted him to write something. That's why she's a producer that they could do in this house during this time during the pandemic and this was a project so from an artistic you know have we've been talking about the return of culture i appreciated that sprung from all of these things that are going on they still wanted these artists still wanted to create and say something about being trapped being trapped in a relationship being trapped in an identity being being trapped because you have feelings blah 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 there are a lot of things covered here but i agree with you at the end of the day when it's over you're like okay w- w- why did i just go through this you know you kind of it doesn't actually
0: end up being about too much and with that said, Mike, that's it for this 36th episode of the Brown and Black Podcast. This episode was edited in part by Joshua Tirado. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. You can follow our comments and opinions at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and a new Donnell Rawlings video on YouTube in the next week. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Brown and Black.